0: Our scripture reading comes from two passages of scripture. They're printed there in your bulletin. In Jeremiah chapter 29, and then we go to the book of Daniel. As you can see, we've shifted gears. This is the kind of the introductory uh, message to a series that we'll be doing this fall, wherein we're examining the book of Daniel. Daniel has quite a few narratives, stories that we should be familiar with, but of great import. And by the way, probably means more to us this day and hour in this country than this book has ever meant before. Because basically what it talks about, and I'll just tip, the, tip it to you right now, because we'll be saying it over and over, is this teaches God's people, God's covenant people, how to live in a pagan environment. And if you don't think we're in a pagan environment... Under a godless Caesar, then you haven't been reading the paper, watching the news, or even been awake very much in the last two or three years. We need to know this lesson. We need to know what God's perspective is on it. So I'm going to struggle to try to explain it to you. It's difficult. But I think we're going to get a lot out of this series in the next few weeks. But today we introduce it, and in order to introduce it, we go back to the prophecies of Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah was living in the land when the Babylonian captivity took place. And he writes a letter forward to the exiles, many of which had already been, been uh, deported to Babylon. And so that basically this passage is that letter that he writes to them. And down there in about uh, chapter, uh, verse 3 there's going to be a bunch of names that I can hardly pronounce. There's too many vowels. They needed, they needed to have sold a few of those vowels. And, and, uh, and But We'll see if we can get through it. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, had all departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Jemairah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, this is the letter, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give them daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf For in it, it's welfare. You'll find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And then we go over to one of the passages in Daniel. Daniel 7. This is a night vision. I saw in the night visions and behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I've struggled with this sermon this week because not only is a lot of new material I had to refresh and catch up on, but it was also the matter of presentation. And uh, I came down on this side. I'm going to bore you maybe more than usual. Maybe for a while. Unless you're interested in understanding your Bible. The Bible is not a book necessarily. It's a collection of books. It is a library that has been written by multiple authors over many centuries. And in order to understand the books of the Bible, and therefore to understand the message of the Bible, we have to understand something of the flow of that particular history. And it's important to remember how God operates. One of the things you'll see as we kind of briefly go through a little introductory sketch of the history of this part of of, uh, redemptive history, this part of Bible history, is that how long the Lord takes. We tend to pray a prayer in the morning and expect to see the answer before sunset. But the Lord takes His time. And when I'm talking about time, I'm talking about centuries. Really, I'm talking about millennia. If you study the history of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 12, is several thousand years. Then in Genesis 12, we come to God's operation. God has a destroying operation and a saving operation. And you see it continually in the Scripture. The Lord will tear down and the Lord will rebuild. The Lord will destroy and then the Lord will recreate. And that's the pattern. And we see that early in the book of Genesis where from the very beginning when God created all, then it was good and then mankind fell into sinfulness and they went into an incredible depravity. Read about it in chapter 6 of Genesis. And what happened is the Lord destroyed. He destroyed all of mankind except for one man and his family, three sons and their wives. And he did this in saving them. The Bible says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So I want you to understand one thing. Salvation is always of grace. He saved in the ark these eight souls. Eight souls. There were thousands and thousands upon the earth that had multiplied into multiple tribes and kindreds and clans and nations. God took it down to one man and his three. After a large amount of time passed again, God saw the wickedness, saw all that mankind was doing, and once again, He determined He was going to start over. And this time, Instead of making the covenant promises that were in the general creation signified by the rainbow and God's promises to the earth of seed time and harvest and all of the rest, God says now He's going to work with one man and His offspring. And so there we have Genesis 12. We bring in Abraham. The call of Abraham. We know a little bit about recorded history at this point. This is about two thousand years before Christ. In fact, we're sitting now two thousand years since Christ appeared upon earth. Abraham lived the same exact amount of time, two thousand years before Christ came to the earth. So two thousand B.C. is Abraham. God starts with Abraham and he makes a family. He has and he takes about three generations to do it seems like forever before Abraham even has a son. And then when he does have a son, it's not the son of promise. And then God gives him the son of promise, Isaac. Isaac has two sons. The two sons then, Esau and Jacob, and then each of them have multiple children. Twelve sons. And the Lord gives them this large family. But in time... We come to Jacob's descendants and famine is in the land. And so God allows them to go to Egypt, but it already sent Joseph forward. And you know the story really well. God sent Joseph into Egypt, into a foreign pagan land to basically be a savior, to save his brothers From there. And the Bible says that they went down into Egypt, they were 70 souls. 70 souls. And several hundred years pass, and eventually they become slaves in Egypt. And then, under the guiding hand of God called Moses, a young man of the tribe of Levi who had been raised in the Pharaoh's court, and you know the story well, God called them out of Egypt's bondage. Now we're around 1500 BC. Now these are big round numbers. I know there's a lot of debate and a lot of scholarly opinion and you know, it'll slip and slide a century either way, but but I'm giving you just the big numbers. It's easy to remember. 2500 1500. And then the days of Moses and Joshua, God leads them into the promised land. And there under several judges and under a form of government called the Amphictyoni, which was a loose confederation of tribes, they continued having the law and the priesthood and very little prophecy in the land until God raised up Samuel. And we know the story then of how Samuel then was the bridge between the days of the judges and the days of the kings for first The experimentation which was where God let the people have their choice of king. It was Saul. You know the story of Saul. Then God installed His choice of king. And that was King David. And now we're down to about a thousand B.C. So we've come from Abraham 500 years through Moses, Egypt, David and now In the land, under the kingdom, having constituted the nation in the wilderness, and having constituted the kingdom in the promised land, the kingdom of God is a theocratic kingdom. They have a vice-regent of God sitting upon the throne. It is a Davidic throne. God promises to preserve the throne of David for all of eternity. It's a covenant God makes. The houses split under David's grandson, but they retained the tribe of Judah and a few portions of a few of the other tribes. A large portion of the tribe of Levi, because they were, they were priests, they stayed in Jerusalem near the temple. The, the tribe of Benjamin, which had always been a small tribe, and it, it, it worked its way in. A lot of the Benjaminites became scribes and scholars of the law. The Apostle Paul was a Benjaminite. They stayed there and also portions of others. But what happened after about another three or four hundred years, God, because of their sin, says, I'm going to punish him. And he threatens destruction upon the people. And in 722 B.C., the Assyrian Sennacherib comes in and takes over the whole northern part of the land, which was the, the nation of Israel, chiefly noted by the largest tribe, Ephraim, who was the blessed son of Joseph, who got the first portion of the blessing of Joseph. And so in the land, that northern area was conquered by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a kingdom that had risen back in the days of Nimrod, and they had grown into a mighty and a fierce and a horrible, horrible Uh, empire. And they came down and destroyed and they sieged the southern kingdom uh, Jerusalem, Judah. And they were going to look like take over Jerusalem pretty easily. They laid a really strong siege to it. But these are the days of Micah and, and especially Isaiah. And the sermons that God gave Isaiah were these sermons. Judah, Jerusalem, is an impregnable fortress. I am your God. I will keep you. And even though the stronger kingdom in the north, Samaria or Ephraim or Israel, they all fell to the Assyrians. And the Assyrians did something that was interesting. They not only deported people from a conquered nation and and took them back home like the Babylonians did, but they would also take them and put them in other nations all around the, the known world. And they would take captives from those conquered nations and bring them in and import them into the land that they had just conquered. That's how we got the Samaritans. They were the, what was left of the northern kingdom. But they had been um, amalgamated into all sorts of foreign tribes that had been imported uh, during this century by the Assyrians. God told Isaiah, preach the steadfast love of the Lord Tell the people that I will always preserve you no matter what. You keep the faith. And he promised many, many things that would happen in the out future about God's people. But about 130 years, think about that a minute, how God's timetable works. In about 130 years, there arose another great power. Another great ancient ancient nation that had been founded by the great Uh, incredible personality, Nimrod of the Old Testament, the Babylonians. Habakkuk, back in the days of Isaiah, had predicted that God was going to raise up the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk couldn't believe it. (laughs) He just said, you're just not going to do this. This doesn't make any sense. And the book of Habakkuk, God works it out and says what he will do, and yet gives a positive word. But eventually, these Chaldeans did arise, and it became the Babylonian Empire. The Akkadians, Sumerians, Chaldeans kind of all merged and, and, and the great powers came together. But the ruler of the world in those days, at least the part that Israel and Judah was in, was Egypt. Egypt had always been an empire that was in some stages of rise and fall, but it was still very, very powerful because of its mighty economic base there in the Nile Valley where it was literally the breadbasket of the world. And they were economically powerful. Egypt was all along. But Pharaoh Necho was defeated at Carchemish by a brother of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nabopolassar, the dad, the father of these two young men, had begun to build this empire. And so by the time we get to 586 BC, we're moving forward, the Babylonian Empire was large enough and strong enough. Under the general then, later to become king, Nebuchadnezzar, they captured and destroyed Israel. I'm sorry, Judah. They took Jerusalem. They razed the city. They burned. They slaughtered. They took captives of the people. It was the Babylonian policy to take the cream of the crop, take some people out of the royal family, take some of the leading philosophers and intellectuals, take some of the leading merchants, take some of the leading craftsmen, take the, take the cream of the crop. And there was a big brain drain out of Jerusalem into Babylon. And this started in, in six, about 605 when they began to, to siege and to deport these people and take them from Jerusalem and Judea into Babylon. Now Babylon was, of course, way up across the Fertile Crescent, north and over Uh, on the uh, Euphrates River. And that was where the strong kingdom of Babylon was beginning to build. And as it built, it began to conquer more and more. And so by the time we get from the early 600s down to 586, we have the complete siege and the collapse. They take the king into captivity. They take the royal family. We'll learn about some of the outstanding young men, probably teenagers, uh, men like uh, Daniel, and his three friends, they were thrown in the fiery furnace. And we'll, we'll see those stories. But this is what happened. God's people now have been defeated. They've been overthrown. One of the interesting things is that while the Babylonians were laying siege over a period of about 15, 18 years to Jerusalem. And capturing them and, and uh, raiding them. Taking the vessels from the temple and a lot of other things. The old prophets in Jerusalem were preaching. You know, prophets are going to preach. they got to make their salary. they got to do their job. They were preaching. And they were preaching Isaiah's old sermons. Saying, oh, don't worry. We're not going to go into captivity. God's going to save us. He's going to preserve us. We're not going to fall. And along comes poor Jeremiah saying, I just heard from the Lord lately. And He's telling me that it's going to fall. And it's going to fall hard. And the people are going to be taken into exile. And they're going to be kept there for 70 years. Why 70? It's because they had not kept the sabbatical years of the Lord. And so God was going to give His land rest for the 70 years that they had not given the land rest in the previous 490 or 500 years since the beginning of the kingdom. God's going to have His Sabbath honored. And if you don't do it now, it'll be done somewhere. There will be a rest. It may be in the dust. The dust of death. But it will be a rest. And God got his Sabbaths fulfilled by taking the people out of the land and putting them into Babylonian captivity. So now they're in Babylon. And meanwhile, the king, the majority of the prophets, the vast majority of the prophets, the priests, are all searching the Scriptures and trying to find what does this mean? David's throne was to be an eternal throne and here the little puppet that sits on the throne is a captive in, in Babylon. Looks like God has failed. Looks like the prophecies are not coming true. Looks like this is the end. Well, it was, to some extent, an end. God was bringing... Bringing in the Babylonian captivity, he was bringing the old shadows and the old types and the old literal theocratic kingdom with its actual king and actual uh, royal house and all of the things that had been set up during the days of David and especially in the days of King Solomon when everything God had promised had come to fulfillment. The land they owned and they and they dominated under Solomon. Everything God promised to Abraham was literally fulfilled in King Solomon. And they had all the promises of God had been fulfilled except this one promise about the eternality of the kingdom. It looked like it had come to an end. What had come to an end was the old theocratic kingdom. God had brought it to its conclusion. It had taught the lessons that needed to be taught. You know the story of the kings of, of Israel and the kings of Jim. Think of someone like, horrible like Ahab and Jezebel in the northern kingdom. Think of someone like Hezekiah. Think of, of Josiah during the days of the revival where Zephaniah was the prophet preaching the law and the gospel and people were believing and, and the, the worship of the Lord was being restored. They had been like this on a spiritual roller coaster and cycle for all those hundreds of years. But God was now bringing that to a conclusion because He was going to bring His people into a new reality. And if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, please hear this. God began in the Babylonian captivity when the exiles were in Babylon. He began to bring His people into a new reality. And the new reality is what does it mean to be in the kingdom of God, in exile. It's hard to think about that when you think about God and all the great Psalms and all the great passages and all the worship hymns and all the things about God being a great king and lifted up and David being his vice regent and all the great expectations of a son of David, a Messiah, a hope. All these things had been coming all through Israel's worship history. They had been declaring that God was going to restore there'd be an eternal peace and eternal life and an eternal kingdom and an eternal reign, and there would be righteous reign, there would be peace, that prosperity, shalom, would rule over the earth. It would be enacted by a prince of peace, and it's all over. It failed. It's destroyed. They're out of the land. The king is off the throne. The priest. Let's look to the priest. Maybe the priest could have. No, they can't help us. There's no temple. There's no sacrifice. There's nothing that they can do to do the Mosaic law. Let's go to the prophets. Maybe the prophets can help us. No, The king has failed us. The priests have failed us. What about the prophets? The prophets were lying to the people. Can you imagine God's called preachers, theologically trained, seminary degrees, telling the people a false message. They were, they were given message of hope. They were preaching optimistic messages. They were talking about how you can have your best life now. They were giving you things that that you need to look up. And Jeremiah's ministry the whole time back in Jerusalem was these prophets have not heard from the Lord. Over and over the Lord would come to Jeremiah and say, I didn't send them. I didn't speak them. In fact, there's a beautiful little passage in the book of Jeremiah where it says, the prophets speak out of their own hearts, not out of my word," says the Lord. Boy, do you see the difference? How many prophets have we heard that speak out of their hearts? They talk from our hearts to your hearts, to their hearts. And it's a heart-to-heart. And it's group therapy. And it's all about the way we feel. That's false stuff right there. That's a perspective that has lost God's perspective on what He's doing over centuries and over millennia for His people And his kingdom, his purposes, his glory, his salvation, and for his Christ. In fact, if you read Ezekiel, now Ezekiel was one of the prophets of this period that had gone into captivity with the people, and he was prophesying to God's people in the Babylonian captivity. And he critiques the prophets, the kings. And the priest under the category, the rubric of the shepherds of Israel. And he finally had to preach an incredible sermon Ezekiel did where he said, where the Lord said to Ezekiel, I am against the shepherds. And he talks about how the shepherds have fleeced the sheep. They've eaten the sheep. They've neglected the sheep. They've not gone into the land to find the sheep. They've not sought them. They've not healed them. They've not led them. They've not fed them. I'm against the shepherd, said the Lord in Ezekiel, over and over. Finally, the Lord gives up and He said, I myself will shepherd my people. And of course, He did that when Christ came. The good shepherd. But we're getting ahead of the story. How am I doing on time? Well, I'm out of time, but I'm not out of sermon, so we've got to talk just a little bit more about this Babylonian captivity. And in that Babylonian captivity, there were as they were going into captivity, during that period of time, you had the ministry of Jeremiah. He's the weeping prophet. He didn't have an emotional problem. In fact, he was a pretty hard-nosed guy. And he had a pretty practical outlook on the ministry. He said, I want out. I'm tired of preaching the minority view and I'm tired of getting thrown into jail for it and everything else. In fact, he bought him a, a bed and breakfast. He bought a wayfaring inn And decided he would set himself up as a hotelier. And he would just sort of take care of people coming and going. And the Lord wouldn't let him. In fact, he couldn't do it. He said, I had fire in my bones. I could not cease to speak. So Jeremiah is prophesying back in the land. Ezekiel is prophesying with a large number of the the, uh, Jewish captives who are now in Babylon by the river Kibar, one of the major streams there that feeds into the Euphrates. They've set up a settlement, and he is ministering to the people there. And then we're going to hear about another young man that comes in one of the waves of the captivity, and it's Daniel. And Daniel is not exactly a prophet. He's not preaching to God's people as such. He's a statesman. And God raises him up to serve in the courts of these kings and not only is it the king of Babylon but it's the successive kings as well and so the story and I'll briefly tell it in about two minutes the story is they will stay in Babylonian captivity for about 70 years in fact they will go from from 605 BC when the first captives leave Jerusalem and go to Babylon all the way up to uh, five 50, 458, so about 115 years they've gone into captivity. 70 years in formal captivity. And then waves begin to come back. And, and if you finish your Bible, look at some other books. Ezra, the, the group that Ezra leads back. Ezra and Nehemiah come back to To rebuild walls and temple and and all the things that were done there. That was the final return. That was God keeping His promise that He was going to bring them back. But while they were in captivity, all those years, without priest, without temple, lying prophets, God purged His people. And He turned them into a people that were a different kind of people. In fact, He turned the worship of Jehovah into a different kind of worship. No longer were they fundamentally dependent upon the ceremonies, but God getting them ready to live by His Word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And it was in the days of the captivity, climaxing in the days of Ezra, when God's people learned to live on His Word. It was also in Babylon where they formulated family gatherings, multiple family gatherings that would get together They called the gathering together, the synagogue, the synagogue was formed. And the synagogue formed the foundation in the walls and everything you can think of, of the first Christian communities. Basically, the early churches in the book of Acts and around were synagogues. And many of them were synagogues where? In foreign nations, in alien cultures. Daniel gave, God gave Daniel the prophecy that following the Babylonian Empire, it would come to an abrupt end under Belshazzar. Belshazzar the king, the son of, the, of Nebuchadnezzar, would lose the kingdom very briefly to the Medes. And then the Medes very quickly would lose the kingdom to the Persians. And over time, the Persians would be defeated by the Macedonian Greeks, by Philip of Macedon and Alexander the Great. And they would bring in another world empire. And it was under this empire that there would come about the worst attack upon God's people. The good news was the Persians under Cyrus allowed them to come back. Not all of them came back. Some did, some didn't. And since I'm out of time, let me just read this one little portion of Scripture to let you know what God told them to do in Babylon. And just forget about Babylon for a minute. You probably didn't retain much of it anyway, so just forget about it. By the way, right now we're at about 500 B.C. Still 500 years before Christ comes. We're at the time when the people came back from Babylon uh, back into the land. And we'll stop our history right there. But just forget about Babylon for a minute. Just imagine what would God's people, God's elect, called, justified, sanctified people worshiping Him, calling upon His name, praying to Him, serving Him, keeping His law, walking in His steps... What would those people do in a foreign land living as exiles? The reason I ask you that question, if you answer that question, you'll, you'll understand the Christian perspective of Christians, real Christians, living in the United States of America right now. Because all the United States of America is the crumbling remnants, the, the, the remnant of a giant empire that's last mentioned the great empire the roman empire and this particular position these people were in so here's what jeremiah wrote to them in this letter that we just read and told them what they needed to do notice this build houses and live in them we're exiles we're going to be going back home next week a couple of years and this thing will be over we'll be we'll be going back to jerusalem we don't No, no jeremiah told him you're there going to be there for a while. Here's what you do when you're there. Build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens and eat the produce. In other words, occupy Put in the vineyards. Put in the orchards. Put in the, the, uh, the uh, uh, vegetable patch. Put in the barley fields. Whatever you need to do to, to live and to, and, and to subsist and to, to do the things in that land. Take wives. It was Mary, and have sons and daughters take wives from your sons and give daughters to your daughters in marriage. In other words, you begin to multiply. It goes all the way down. He mentions to the fourth generation, he says, multiply there and do not decrease. Multiply there and do not decrease. Because God wants us to still have children. God wants us to still have families and structure. And marriage. Given marriage. You're not going to destroy the institution, the God-ordained institution of marriage. Continue to live according to Genesis 2 in the middle of a land that doesn't believe the Bible at all. In other words, how godly families build, work, occupy. In 6, so he says, Multiply there. Notice, keep on fulfilling the creation mandate of Genesis 2. Do not decrease. Notice, don't hide out, shrivel up, die off. Prosper. Because that's what we says. Seek the welfare of the city. And the word welfare is the word shalom. And I think we know what it means. In fact, it's translated wholeness later on in this passage where God says, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans of wholeness. That also is the word shalom. In other words, it's peace. It's prosperity. It's wholeness. It is uh, good fortune or good enterprise. It is health. Good health. That's a good message to hear in the middle of an epidemic. Epidemic. God wants us to promote health. What is it exactly that will make us healthy? And He he gives them everything there. He said, seek the welfare of the city. When you're in Babylon, you live in Babylon according to my ways and prosper. Do what I tell you. Obey my commandments and do everything you can to get the city to prosper along with you. Seek the welfare of the city. Influence that culture. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord for on its behalf. Just pray for the pagan city, pray for, pray, pray for the pagan nation, because, and here it is, is this for its welfare will be your welfare. Isn't that something? It's what the Lord's put us. Here. Jesus, when he came, he talked about salt and light, things of that sort. That is what we are to do. We are to prosper following God's ways, living, according to, to Psalm 1, even in this pagan country, uh, culture. Because God knows that basically, from now on till the end of time, whenever that is, God's people, the true people of God, the true citizens of the true kingdom of God, are going to be living in hostile, pagan countries they're going to be living in exile for the most part and god is getting his people spiritually and emotionally socially uh, physically ready to live in that environment and we'll hopefully we'll see a little more about that Uh, one of the three or four lectures i didn't have (laughs) i never got past page one actually and what's what's the true nature of the Kingdom of God? This is going to teach us what the Kingdom of God is. There's a big battle on what the Kingdom of God is. If you figure out what the Kingdom of God is, it'll help you understand whether Christ is going to come back premillennial, postmillennial, post-millennial, amillennial, non-millennial, pan-millennial. You know, when you figure out what the Kingdom of God is, then you'll know what that reign is. That, that reign that's talked about in Scripture. When it's going to take place. And it'll help you a whole lot with a lot of other things in your overview of, of Scriptures. Father, we thank You for this lesson today. We ask, Lord, that it will be more than just a history lesson, but it will be the story of Christ, His story, and that we may forever be a part of it as His people. He's our God. We are His people. And in His name we pray. Amen.